Yeah. They're, they're going to invite me to the Davos conference in a few years. Hell yeah. Depending on where they host it, I'll, I'll see what I can't do about maybe finding like some insurgents in the area <laughs> and maybe we can just blow it up. <laughs> I'm glad you all are here because we're now holding you hostage until you collectively pass world hunger dear god they could do it so easily <laughs> what is it like to end world hunger it would only cost like a hundred billion dollars or something bezos could do that himself oh yeah it's hot pot of the south not your daddy's appalachia hot pot of the south progress cannot wait Welcome to Pot of the South, a production of Change Tennessee. Pull up a chair and refill your sweet tea as we peel back the layers of Southern politics to get a better understanding of what's going on and why it matters. My name is Gabe, and joining me today, as always, is Drew Dyson, Tennessee's favorite galactic communist revolutionary. Howdy, y'all. Today, we're going to take a little trip down to the still to take a peek at what's fermenting for the upcoming midterms and what we can expect from them. But before we take a look at that beautiful midterm mash, Drew, what's one thing that you think needs to be spotlighted that the national media or regional media seems to be not paying that much attention to? This actually did get quite a bit of attention, but because we don't have the long (laughs) attention span, uh, it was announced earlier this week that the Supreme Court would be taking up a court case from Mississippi involving abortion and more specifically abortion access. So the law in question is a Mississippi abortion ban that cuts off abortions in almost every case at 15 weeks. A well on the the term of viability. And this could be one of the more pivotal abortion rights cases heard since Planned Parenthood v. Uh, the court is a lot more conservative than it was then. And this could be a great chance for them to cut back at Roe v. Wade tremendously. Uh, it could also be the possibility for them to actually revisit and, and undercut the precedent altogether. Uh, this court case violates the 50 years of precedent Roe v. Wade has set, um, and it's going to threaten a lot of individuals' lives uh, for their access to safe and legal abortions, depending on how the court comes down on this one way or the other. Uh, we can we can look at the conservative judges on the court, and we can already go ahead and make the assumption that even if John Roberts rules with the liberal, there's still a majority there to take a sharp right turn on abortion precedent. So it's very uh, it's also a reminder that since we'll be talking about the midterms today, we should all for the Supreme Court as well. Like it's on the. That is something that conservatives are really good at, and it's something liberals and and leftists forget a lot of them. And, you know, it's not a great system that we have, and hopefully we can reform it, but this is the system we're stuck. So just keep this in mind as we go into next term uh, with the Supreme Court. This is going to be a, a huge case that they take up, and it could be devastating for Roe v. Yeah, and the thing about is restricting abortion rights or doing away with abortion rights altogether, which a lot of states have trigger laws set up in place to where the moment Roe v. Wade gets overturned or struck down, they're going to have these ridiculous bills that are they're immediately going to try to force through and push through. It's not going to affect 
rich people. If you're in the 1% and you want to get an abortion, you're still going to be able to fucking do it. Because if you have money, our court system has bared out that the laws don't apply to you. And so this is incredibly important that this case that you're talking about, hopefully it comes through on the side of justice and the side of civil liberties, because it's only going to affect marginalized people, low income workers that are going to be even more put into a bind by the court case by having their access to health care be restricted. Absolutely. It's it's dangerous, I mean, to say the least. And you would, that the court isn't going to, a uh, huge back turn on what the precedent has been and implement something like this because several Republican states have already attempted to place, you know, fetal heartbeat um, or the fetal heartbeat limit, so which is like a six-week abortion. And it could be entirely possible that the Supreme Court says it's up to the states to determine when the cutoff is due to X, um, the uh, Planned Parenthood v. Case basically said that there cannot be an undue burden on the need to getting an abortion or an access, especially in the first trimester. But this could be a huge turnover and it could give just as much wiggle room for states to pass them in the first trimester as much as they're allowed to in the third trimester. South Carolina literally just passed, I think it was like a six-week uh, abortion ban bill the other day. And I should stress also that a lot of states have passed these these very limiting abortions. Um, as far as I'm aware, none of them actually have gone into effect because they're all being held up in the courts right now. So if you're listening to this and if you're very, um, you still have access to safe and legal abortion, varying on your state laws, but these short-term abortions that have been passed are, are being held up in the courts, right? And unfortunately, this time next year, there's there's possibly going to be a decision handed down or an opinion from that that could go one way or the other. And, uh, at that point, if if there is a total reversal of, I would think it would be imperative for Democrats to pass actual legalize makes it legal across the country instead of just relying on the single print that we have for 50 years, especially uh, you know the fate of one justice or justices on a hang this important precedent and balance. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, the whole concept of bodily autonomy doesn't matter when it comes to a woman. I guess going back to using Hebrew, Baal, for husband, master, women need to be subservient to their husbands, their property, not people, and so they don't actually have any rights. That's a patriarchy, baby, and we need to dismantle it every day, stone by stone. God. Well, Gabe, so my uh, spotlight was quite depressing. I'm interested to know what you think is important for our listeners to hear about. Yeah, absolutely. So from what I've seen, only one major news outlet has really covered this, and uh, that would be the Washington Post covering the Arizona election audit, which if you haven't been following that, it is phenomenal. It is one big joke. To kind of summarize, the Board of Supervisors for Maricopa County, which is the biggest county in Arizona, has called for an audit, the audit to stop in a 12-page letter that they sent to the Senate President Karen Fan. So a quick little breakdown. The Board of Supervisors is a five-member board, four of whom are Republicans, and they all signed off on this letter saying the audit needs to stop. In this letter, they describe the audit as inept, 
promoted falsehoods, and defamed the public servants who ran the fall election. A big takeaway from it is the company conducting the audit. This name is great. Cyber Ninja has no election auditing experience whatsoever. It's a company based out of Florida, and the CEO has been an incredibly vocal proponent of the Stop the Steal movement on Twitter. So it's just a shit show from the very beginning of it. And I highly recommend you go and read this 12-page letter that was sent to Senate, uh, Senate President Fan. If not, it's a lot. It's kind of a lot to read, but I've got some just beautiful excerpts from it that I'm going to read out real quick. This again, this is just uh, Senate President Karen Fan. Your tweet, which relies on the quote modified date shown in the screenshot as evidence of wrongdoing, is demonstrably false. The only thing it does is demonstrate your auditor's incompetence. Their stunning lack of base of a basic understanding for how their software works is egregious and only made worse by the false tweet sent defaming the hardworking employees of Maricopa County. Another one. We will not be responding to any additional inquiries from your auditors. Their failure to understand basic election processes is an indication you didn't get the best people to perform in your political theater. We have wasted enough county resources. People's tax dollars are real. Your auditors are not. Your auditors began the audit unaware that using blue pens on ballots could harm them and apparently would have distributed blue pens to those conducting the recount of ballots had a reporter not informed them. It has gone downhill from there. And I've got one more cut out from it that this is just the icing on the cake that just shows you how beautiful this thing is. You are using purple lights and spinning tables. You are hunting for bamboo. They're looking for bamboo slivers <laughs> to prove that China interfered in the election. They're running around the Maricopa County Coliseum with like UV lights, like this is that like a shitty MTV show from the nineties. These like, are true patriots, guys. And if you continue to read like more in the letter, like it almost sounds like Cyber Ninja doesn't even know like the company doesn't even know how the fucking computer works. Like it is amazing <laughs> how inept and just how egregious their understanding or lack of understanding of how computers function is. Like they've presented documents that just have like a bunch, it's just a big old file list with a whole bunch of red X's on it. And they never explain what the red X's mean or explain what these files are. They're just like presenting this as like, see, these files are missing. It's just like, no, uh, uh, what does this mean? Nobody knows. You're just throwing information at us, expecting us to believe it without any context, without anything to back up your argument. Like, what the hell are you doing? So, so wait, I've got a question for you, guy, because I've heard about the, them looking for the bamboo. Is that be, isn't that because they think these came from, like, the ballots were shipped in from China? Yeah. And, and also with that, how incredibly racist is Apparently they're just shipping a bunch of bamboo. I don't know, that they think, like, bamboo is going to be everywhere in <laughs> these boxes of ballots. It's just amazing. It, like, yep, see, the bamboo, like, even though bamboo is an incredibly invasive species that is fucking everywhere in the U.S. Oh. now, I, I highly recommend, just read, like, the first three pages of the letter. It's it'll make your day or make you incredibly depressed for the future of 
elections in this country, that this is what's considered a valuable audit by the Arizona Senate President Karen Fan. Well, and it's just going to get worse, too. I mean, if this is what they're doing now in 2020, if the election turns out to be closer in 2024 and Republicans actually win seats in the House and hold the majority, I mean, who knows what they're going to attempt to do there also. I mean, it's it's common that we're still doing this, but it's also at the same time. I mean, it does not bode well for the future elections that will take place. No, no it does not. All right. Well, we are going to take a quick break before we come back and uh, jump into our topic about the midterms. This week's supporter hasn't forayed into the American political landscape that much, but that's because he's too busy destroying the environment in the name of science. That's right, the doge lord and self-anointed master of coin, Elon Musk. When he's not tweeting sick memes, Mr. Musk's favorite activities include watching rockets explode over the Texas coast, raining debris all over protected wetlands and biospheres. Elon Musk, Mars is just the next target of my planets to ruin. everyone well today we are going to do our first update and first look at the 2022 midterm elections so you're probably thinking didn't i just go through an election cycle you did and it was mind-numbing well guess what we're a little over 500 days away from the next midterm. If you're wondering what a midterm is, it is the fancy name we use for an election that is in between presidential elections. It still works the same way, but as as we talk today, we're just going to give you some highlights of things that uh, we find notable going into the midterms, what the current standings look like. We're going to talk a little bit, too, about the messaging that both parties are looking at taking as well, heading into trying to court voters. And, of course, we're going to open it up with our favorite thing that we've consistently talked about, redistricting. So, Gabe, if you saw last month... The first results of the U.S. Census were released. Uh, it showed which states had either lost representation, gained seats, etc. The most notable changes were that California, Illinois, New York all lost one seat each. The big ones, too, were Florida, New York, Texas, and Colorado all gained one, except for Texas, which gained two seats in the House. West Virginia, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan all lost a seat as well, and Montana and Oregon both gained one seat as well. I just want to say real quick, Texas could have gained more had they not done everything in their damn power to muck up the census as much as they did. It's kind of surprising, too, that Texas and Florida both did not gain more. But as we've kind of seen, there were varying demographics that did not fill out the census, uh, especially in Texas, where Latinos were heavily undercounted, or undercounted, excuse me, uh, due to all the trickery that the Trump administration and Governor Greg Abbott took in the state. So that, that affected that. Gabe, kind of looking at which states gained and lost seats 
What do you think that means for Democrats going forward or, or just for the House and in and of itself? I think, you know, especially like New York, which se- which seems to be a Democratic stronghold, losing a seat is huge. And Texas, you know, thank God they only gained a couple, but like we just said, they could have gained a whole lot more. That doesn't really bode well for us, at least for, at least for Democrats and leftists going forward. Uh, I saw a great graphic today of Crenshaw's district in Texas, and it's like just a weird amalgamation of a sea surrounding the city. And it just shows you like how awful the gerrymandering and redistricting is that they will do anything in their power to minimize the electoral, not the electoral process. I mean, they'll do anything they can to minimize the electoral process, but minimize democracy so they can hold on to power in a minority rule. They can have less votes, but can still be able to do what they need to do because of how they're going to fuck around with the district lines. So it doesn't give me a good feeling in my stomach knowing how badly we've lost in state, the left has lost in state legislatures over the past few years, especially knowing that the uh, GQP controls state legislatures in a census year. And some of these states, like California, have independent redistricting commissions. California seems like a state we're automatically going to lose one seat. New York, more than likely, as well. Illinois, uncertain. We could more than likely lose the the seat there as well. But when, when you look at this map, all you need to see is that states like Montana, Texas, Florida are all getting the chance to gain a seat. And they all have Republicans in control there. They can kind of do whatever they want. I do believe one of those states has an independent redistricting commission. I can't remember which, but simply put, I mean, even without, you know, these states in the mix, they're going to gain seats and they're going to get the chance to kind of redraw those however they want. Gabe mentioned Dan Crenshaw's district. If you haven't seen it, look at it. It's heavily gerrymandered. I mean, they could gerrymander their way to the necessary seat requirement or the seats they need to gain and and win the House already. I mean, off the bat, they're only, uh, Democrats only hold a slim margin of six to hold the House at the moment and to have the majority. And, and since we're kind of here right now, I'm going to segue into the House a little bit as we talk about the midterms, because that coupled with redistricting doesn't look so good for us right now. Typically, when you look at midterm elections or, or any elections, really, the party in power tends to not do that great. The exception to that would be Bill Clinton in 1998. Uh, The Democrats actually won a few seats there, not enough to regain control, but they won seats. And right after 9-11 in the 2002 midterms, George Bush won a lot of seats there as well. Other than that, it's been pretty historically accurate that the party in power is going to lose seats. Now, those things can change depending on how we turn out, but that's just kind of the historical implications on the outlook. I was reading a thing uh, right before you were recording, 538, uh, about a week ago, did a whole breakdown of what to expect on the midterms. And they're kind of saying, looking at the historic data of it, and the party in power loses. Right now, with they called it party generic polling. So they kind of just send out ballots without without any candidates on it. Just would you vote Democrat or would you vote Republican in this election? And it was slightly favoring Democrats at the time. But 
they admitted that the 2020 party generic polling was super off. And so you kind of got to take that data with a grain of salt. But one thing that I've noticed in a lot of analysis is they're looking at just the numbers of it. And maybe they're not talking about this in their analysis, but people are pissed off now, like especially people on the left, because the Republican Party, the party of Q, have done such a phenomenal job of marginalizing and minimizing all gr- groups of people. Like It's almost to the point where if you're not a rich white person, they don't give two shits about you. And people are starting to take notice. Look how many more activists are out there in the communities now. Look how many people are calling for better wages and more workers' rights and access to health care, better education system. And the take that the Republican Party is doing is like, oh, well, tough shit, deal with it. And people are getting pissed off. And when people are angry, they turn out to vote. You know, let's look at the 2020 election where people were waiting. You know, we talked about this with Farron. People were waiting in line like six, seven, eight hours to go vote. And people are going to do that same thing, I think, come midterms if the Republican Party and the party of Q keep on their bullshit. People are going to stay mad. They almost stopped COVID relief from going through. You know, here in Tennessee, Marshall Blackburn, Bill Lee, Burchett, all these guys are bitching and moaning about the infrastructure. The uh, the Hernandez de Soto bridge cracked and is shutting down huge interstate travel, but they're not going to they're going to hold up the bill and not let it go through. That's going to hurt that hurts people. That hurts commerce. That hurts people's ability to make a living. And when you hit people in the pockets, that's what gets them going. So people are gonna, as long as they stay on this bullshit, people are going to stay mad. And if they're gonna, if they stay mad, they're gonna turn out to vote. And maybe, maybe we can reverse that trend of losing seats, uh, the party in power losing seats. And maybe we can gain some seats and have a legitimate majority in all three chambers to actually get some progress done. But we're 500 days off, so a lot can happen between now and then. And to go back to your original point when you were talking about the 538 analysis on this, looking at one of the more recent polls from Change Research, it found that uh, in that generic ballot from April 15th to April 20th, the people surveyed favored Democrats by five points. 48% would vote Democrat, 43 Republican. And you talked about how, you know, they were off in 2020. The polling average in 2020 was that Democrats were favored by plus 7.3%. And the actual result for that was plus 3.1%. However, if you go back to a more comparable year in 2018, Democrats were favored by 8.7% in the midterm to win the House and actually won the national popular vote that year by 8.6%. So the error there was only off by 0.1 of a point. And it's going to be interesting to see now. Trump is not on the ballot again. 2016 and 2020 polls were wildly inaccurate due to the fact that there was just a surge of Trump voters that people did not account on who did not normally turn out and vote. So we, like you mentioned, people are still angry. I'm certainly still angry that we're holding this slim majorities on both sides and it's still so hard to get things passed. It's going to be interesting to see what the effect of not having Trump on the ballot will be for the House. 
loss, but it's also going to be interesting, like you said, in the next 500 days, what is going to change? And another important polling to look at right now, Morning Consultant came out with last month as well. It was the enthusiasm among voters. And currently, right now, 81% of Democrats are more likely than Republicans to be enthusiastic about the midterms compared to 72% of Republicans that say they're somewhat, at least somewhat enthusiastic about this. 31% of Trump voters actually said that they were not enthusiastic about voting in the midterms, only compared with 19% of Biden voters. So that's going to be an interesting statistic to also pay attention to as well, as we kind of keep giving these updates is where is the enthusiasm lying? And that's going to be a big key factor. There's going to be things that change between now and election day, and that's absolutely certain. But the future of the House rests on a few things, and that is redistricting, the ability to pass the For the People's Act and make sure voting is secure in this country and, and not stripped away. And then just the fact that how are we going to engage with voters on this level? Because running for a House seat is wildly different than running for a Senate seat. And there's going to be major differences between those. Not only that, I hope we keep the House. I also hope we're able to expand the squad in the House as well and, and get rid of some members that might be staying too long on our side as well. Being enthusiastic about you know, what was it, 81 versus 72% of people on the left are enthusiastic about voting in the midterm elections. Like, they gotta be, we gotta be. The Republican Party has literal neo-Nazis serving in Congress. Most notably that comes to mind for me is Madison Cawthorn. We don't need to go into like his like 20 out, the 20 allegations against him of sexual misconduct and sexual harassment because that just gets swept under the rug because the patriarchy, you know, women don't count for anything apparently. But this dude literally posted on his Instagram about visiting the eagle's nest being on his bucket list and referred to Hitler as Der Fuhrer. And this motherfucker is sitting in Congress in the House of Representatives I think it was an Illinois representative quoted Hitler in one of her speeches. This like the Republican Party has literal Nazis serving. That should that alone should keep people energized. Marjorie Taylor Greene, Jesus, can't forget everyone's favorite. With people like that, like we have to stay enthusiastic. We have to stay energized and not rest on our laurels of oh we won the president. Like all of our problems are solved. We have to keep that energy up every year because even outside of the midterms, there's been a local election in Tennessee. There's been a local election like every week, every other week since March, April. In Tennessee alone, uh, it, during the midterm elections next year, there's over 2,200 seats across the state available. The left has to turn up for those and turn out and stay energized to keep neo-Nazis and white supremacists from getting in office and holding office because that's only going to hurt us and hurt us as a country moving forward. Well, we've spent a lot of time talking about the House, so I want to roll over now to the Senate where our odds of actually holding on to the Senate are a lot better than usual. And certainly a lot better outlook in the House. We actually face a pretty, not going to call this easy by a long shot, but we face one of our least hardest maps in a while. States like Nevada, Arizona, and Georgia, we're going to be playing defense, especially in Georgia, where we will want to protect Raphael Warnock's seat 
there, but states like Nevada and New Hampshire are less likely to be toss-ups compared to Arizona and Georgia. So we're not playing as much of defense as the Republicans will be because Wisconsin, Ohio, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and Florida are going to be seats that we have the opportunity to pick up. If we're looking at these in order that we should should probably be looking at them, and I'm going off by Cook's political report at the moment because I think it's way too early to to judge until we know which candidates are running for these. Pennsylvania and North Carolina are toss-ups. Ohio and Wisconsin lean Republican and Florida is likely Republican. So we have the chance at least to gain those seats and more. Gabe, when you kind of hear the that outlook so far for the Senate, what does that make you think, especially kind of in this 50-50 divide we're in right now? I feel pretty good about the left getting some wins in the Senate, especially five of the Republicans are retiring. And so that going to that leaves a huge power void in that and if you're an incumbent, you kind of have a little bit of an advantage because you just have the name recognition. I'm not that interested. I don't know who this other person is, so I'm just going to check off the incumbent. Again, five of these, like, no, I don't think any Democratic senators have announced retirement. It's just Republican senators who are announcing retirement. So they're giving away a huge advantage that they would have to try to hold the power balance by not by the Republican Party not marching out a incumbent on in five races is huge for the left to try to pick up those seats. Yes, Florida, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, like these are kind of some areas that we might not do so well in. But, but you know, I mean, barring Florida, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania are two states that we actually won in the presidential election. So we could, we could maybe pick up there. Now, Florida, I don't know. Yeah, I just look at those states as states where, you know, Wisconsin maybe is a little different because of what happened in Kenosha. You know, maybe that helps keep those activists engaged and trying to keep people angry and turning out to the polls because, you know, as time went on, the margin in Wisconsin grew. But outside of, you know, Philadelphia and Pennsylvania, it wasn't really that great. I mean, Pittsburgh, you think of these urban areas leaning left, but Pittsburgh is not really that left of a city. The areas around Pittsburgh and Pittsburgh itself tend to lean a little more to the right. In Pennsylvania, we're kind of putting all of our eggs in the basket of, yo, Philadelphia, show up again. That's a lot of hope on one city. I don't know if we can, if we'll be able to replicate that. Even in a down year and a midterm year, even with the activist community really stepping up and shout out to all the activists out there, I don't know if they're going to be able to replicate that success again. Florida is, God knows what the hell is going to happen in Florida. I mean, yeah. they always like to call it a swing state, but it hasn't been a swing state since 2000. Like it's gone red across the board there. So well, and then North Carolina is kind of a conundrum. It's it's stayed purple for the most part. It has a Democratic governor. It went for Barack Obama, and it got close for Cal Cunningham and for Biden this last cycle. But we couldn't get there. It's it's been stuck in this weird area for a while now. So North Carolina is is definitely one. We should be expanding our map and we should be expanding our ability to play on the playing field. We should hopefully be recruiting candidates to expand, you know, states that have 
them up. Uh, hopefully we're, we're looking at, you know, other states to compete in as well, because if we're not competing in them and, and helping them, it's not helping us grow our, our base, our map. So it'll be interesting. And of course, we're in the first early months of 2021. A lot of things are going to change between now and then. But currently looking at it, the Senate is still, I'd say, a toss up in terms of who's likely to get it. But it's definitely one of the easier maps that Democrats have had in a while. I think just from a policy standpoint, if we can pick up two or three seats in the Senate, let's call the House a push based on everything. Let's say we that's a push and it stays kind of where it's at. But we can pick up two or three seats in the Senate. That opens the door for policy to actually get pushed through because you're not in a direct 50-50 deadlock at that point. Republicans will be in a definitive minority at that point, and these moderate Republicans are really going to be put up against the between a rock and a hard place of trying to have, you know, legislation get through. Comes to mind is Murkowski and Collins, but even there, God knows what they're going to do in any situation. Maybe they start coming around to getting some legislation. Mitt Romney, maybe like, oh, I don't like this legislation, but I understand it's for the better of the country, so I'll sign off on it. I mean, I think the most important thing, too, is it can push us closer to ending the filibuster. And Joe Manchin does not become the center of the universe in the Senate anymore. The the more seats we pick up, the less important it is to revolve everything around him. And I guess, you know, kind of last thing before we roll into what current messaging is for the Democrats and Republicans is it's been extremely frustrating if you're a leftist or a progressive kind of watching some of these policies get watered down, some of them stripped or, you know, just not seeing certain things passed and pushed. But if you remember what it was like in 2017, watching them try and pass gutting the Affordable Care Act again and seeing it pass and then watching, as I did, late into the night and seeing John McCain cast the deciding vote that ultimately killed their attempts at that, it was a breath of fresh air. I mean, I could breathe. That was great. But from the time that Trump was elected until we got the the House back in 2018, not saying that everything ended there, but I could finally breathe a little easier because I knew that his insane policies weren't just going to get passed. So to come from that to where we are now, yes, I'm still irritated and want progressive policies. But you know what? We've come a lot further than we did now. And to kind of lose that fire and to not want to help gain seats or to help push for us to expand the majorities and protect our majority in the House and Senate right now would be counterintuitive to what we want. Yes, some of the people we're dealing with are not the most progressive, but I can assure you that if Kevin McCarthy becomes Speaker of the House in 2022, that you will definitely not see the Green New Deal make it to the floor. You will definitely not see climate legislation make it to the floor. There will be no health care reform make it to the floor, the House, regardless if we keep the Senate or not. So those are the things that are still going to be on the line. And so, so to kind of roll into this, Gabe, we're already seeing the kind of arguments that Republicans and Democrats will be making in 2022 to voters take shape. And I'm going to start with the Democrats because they seem to have more of an idea of where they're going. So Democrats right now seem to actually be focusing on an area 
that is very good for us. They're going to focus on economics. They're going to focus on these big packages that Biden is attempting to pass from uh, the COVID relief to infrastructure to the families plan. These are huge areas that Democrats, believe it or not, actually fare better polling wise than Republicans on Fox News might have you believe. And when Democrats actually talk to voters about economic issues, more voters actually trust them with the economy than they do with Republicans. But you wouldn't know that because most times Democrats are flailing back to the culture wars that Republicans start up. In 2018, Democrats did a great job of banding together and talking about health care and protecting health care. And that helped them win in 2018. So, Gabe, what do you kind of think of this current messaging that they're going after now, focusing on what Biden is doing with the economy, building up all these jobs, pushing out of COVID and the pandemic stronger than before? It's, it's huge for the left and for Democrats and progressives, especially. I believe it was yesterday, President Biden was at a Ford manufacturing plant talking to the unions about manufacturing as part of his infrastructure deal. Yes, again, like you said, they're not going as far to the left as progressives as we would like them to, but they're understanding that, God, I, I hate this man, but James Carville, it's the economy, stupid. They're understanding that if you want people to be behind you, the number one way to do it is hit them in the pocket, put money in people's pockets. Look how like everybody loved their Biden bucks, their $1,400 checks that came in. You know, starting in July, American families are going to start getting relief through the child care credits, like as direct payment to them. You know, it's only set up for a year, but if we can keep the pressure on them through that and they can then a year from now, we're looking, you know, hardcore campaigning going into the midterms at that point. If they can make that a permanent thing, that'll be huge. We need to stay on the economy. You know, we've pretty much like, I don't want to say definitively, but they've done a really good job of shoring up the Affordable Care Act as something that I don't think people can really touch going forward. Or if they can, they're going to piss off a lot of voters. Now we need to tackle the economy, get away from the culture war, get away from the identity politics, because that, that just alienates too many people. Demographics are constantly shifting in areas. You can't stay with identity politics and expect to win because you're always going to be leaving people out. You have to go after the money. There are way more working class individuals that will band together and show solidarity with each other at the ballot box if they know they're getting something out of it. You're not depending on people's altruism at that point. You're hitting them right in, in the most selfish aspect, their bank account. People want to know that they can pay the, for their rent. They want to know that they can put food on the table. They want to know that they can take their significant other out for a night on the town or whatever. They want that security. They want it for themselves. So you put money in people's pockets and they're going to like you. I don't know anybody who didn't like me after I gave them 20 bucks. And, and I think, too, we're not saying, you know, don't have these conversations about what should we do with our police departments or or how do we protect trans students or, or members of the LGBTQ community. And that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is if you're making your central argument that I'm going to make sure that the economy is structured for you, works for you, and not for the top. That's a big thing. You can still have these conversations that, yes, I believe that we need to protect transgenders, uh, students' rights, and that they should be allowed to play the sport that is assigned with their gender identity. You can have that without saying, oh, like, you, you know, getting into the culture war battles that Republicans are designing and making 
problems that aren't problems. We're, we're wasting our time screaming at them because they're they're saying these ludicrous things when we can actually turn around and say, or if we're going to target policing at its root, we've got to look at a way that's not costing us so much money, but in a way that people feel more protected. Not saying that's that's personally how I feel, but there's a way to have these conversations if you are wherever on the spectrum of a Democrat without getting dragged into the culture war and still focusing on the main aspect of the message of the economy. To that point, you think the citizens of Minneapolis want to be on the hook for a $25 million payout to George Floyd's family? Hell no, they don't want to do that. And so that's a way that that topic can be broached and tackle it from both sides where policing gets the major reform that it needs. It is a inherently racist institution that needs major overhauls, if not outright gutted and rebuilt from the ground up. But you can tackle it from the economic side of it to speak the language that the voters are speaking. If you want to convince somebody of your side, you have to speak in a way that they understand. And that's exactly what you were just talking about, Drew. We have to be able to speak to these issues without going into the culture war. Because that's what the Republicans are doing right now. And it's a shit show for them. They're just angry all the time, but not productively angry. They're just yelling, screaming into the void about whatever, whoever got canceled this week. And it's just, they're flailing and it's, you can see it. And I think with that, let's roll into what the Republicans kind of arguments have been shaping up to be right now. It's not as clear cut yet. I mean, we just saw them revoke Liz Cheney from her leadership position and replace Elise Stefanik in that role, someone who's a strong Trumper. And you seem to have half the party wants to focus on Donald Trump and their grievances over the 2020 election and fighting the big main Democrats. And then you have the other half that kind of wants to focus on the culture wars and wants to talk about how they would be better and stronger on the economy, they'll protect your taxes, they're not going to do government spending, almost traditional Republican stuff. But it does seem that there's no clear, consistent message just yet for the Republicans. Yeah, like you said, there's so much infighting right now. During the Liz Cheney uh, removal from power fiasco, there was talk about splitting off and forming a third party. And that just goes to show you, like, they're going, they're going to be primarying each other and spending so many of their resources fighting each other that they're not going to be able to put together a clear message. They're not going to be able to speak the language of the voters because, like you said, one party is traditional Republican, you know, hate the poor, and the other is this. Q conspiracy theory bullshit. So they're going to be spending so much, they're going to alienate a huge group of voters that will either not vote. You know, if they alienate the traditional Republicans, there's a chance that they could flip and become moderate Democratic voters. But if the Q voters are alienated, they're just not going to show up to vote because the system's rigged as as we're seeing with what's going on in Arizona in the audit. They're going down a self-destructive path and it's great to watch. You know, it'll be really interesting to see what emerges and to see what policy actually emerges from this that they're going to take into messaging come the midterm elections. Yeah, and it's going to be interesting to see how they decide to handle the issues of Biden's infrastructure plan and his family plan as well. You had basically all the Democrat or all the Republicans band together to not vote for COVID relief package. 
So that's something that that Democrats can point back to. And then you're going to have this infrastructure plan in which Biden has proposed that corporations will pay their fair share in taxes to fund this. And Republicans actually don't want to go for that. They kind of want to foot the they want one, a lower package, but they also want to kind of foot the bill at individuals. And that's not actually very popular to want to tax individuals over corporations. So that's going to be interesting how they come down on that. And then, of course, the families plans. Democrats have unveiled three big plans, not as big as maybe some people would like, but they are pretty progressive in their scope and, and what they do compared to previous presidents. So it's going to be interesting to see. One, you can already tell that's where the Democratic, Democratic Party's message is going. Where the Republic's message, Republican Party's message is going is going to be difficult to understand until maybe after these bills are passed. Like I said, it's still not clear cut. It's still not understood just yet exactly because they're still kissing Trump's boots and they want Trump out on the campaign trail, kissing up their candidates and and helping them flip some seats. But this is just kind of where we are right now, over 520 plus days away from the November 8th midterm elections in 2022. We'll make sure to kind of pop in and do these periodically to to give you some updates, let you know how everything's looking, what's changed. But this was fun, Gabe, to kind of do the first installment of these. We will take a quick break and when we come back, we've got some some people who just need a good old bless your heart. So stay tuned. One person who isn't afraid to abandon former President Trump is Elon Musk. Once appointed to three of Trump's counsels, Musk resigned from those posts following the U.S.'s exit from the Paris Agreement, citing his belief in the need for robust climate action. Elon Musk, I'll definitely change the climate and environment, but that's because wildlife now gets to live amongst rocket debris and hazardous waste. everyone welcome back we are to our final segment before we close out today and we are going to talk about people that need to just uh, bless their hearts so Gabe who who do you got today state senator Joey Hensley just the thirstiest man on the state senate for Tennessee just bless your heart on a number of reasons uh so This kind of all came to light as he has been caught giving conflicting testimonies to the medical board for the state of Tennessee and in divorce proceedings with his wife. So just kind of what's going on with the medical board. Back in October of 2020, he was put on medical probation for three years for the unethical prescription of opioids. Turns out he had been writing prescriptions for family members and employees. He's, a, he's the only doctor in a small town. It's not that unheard of for doctors to do that if you're the only one in the area, but it's still, it's highly frowned upon. But what got him in trouble with the medical board is he wasn't documenting this stuff or taking the necessary precautions to prevent abuse and addiction. But that's not the kicker on all of this. One of the individuals and employees that he was writing these prescriptions to was also in the family. But wait, there's more. As his testimony 
reports, he was also romantically involved with this individual. He was having sex with his second cousin. What in the sweet home Alabama? This man, yes, State Senator Joey Hensley, was having sex with his second cousin. This man was so thirsty, bloodlines be damned, and he went for it. Bless your heart, Senator Hensley. You you guys are in, like, you guys just got out of session. Like, you've been in session. Come on. Like, you could have gone to almost any bar in Broadway and been, sati- been satiated without doing some weird shit. I'm going to go ahead and say, it. we're sex positive on this podcast. It hasn't really come up before, but we're sex positive. But this is a little much, man. This is a little much. Family, you got to you gotta keep it separate on there. Like, no, come on, man. Come on and hit it off. I asked him questions, he asked me questions, like we clearly really wanted to get to know each other. And not to sound corny, but like, I don't know, he made me feel like I was home. Like, is is this the one? I don't know. And then he asked me, what what did you say your last name was again? And I'm like, Pavitsky, why? He's like, oh, we're cousins. Very close-knit family, it sounds like he's got there. I wonder if they are from Alabama, though. I don't want to be invited to his family reunion. Oh, uh, it's, it's just a big old orgy. <laughs> Sounds like drugs and orgy. So much hydrocodone and, oh, uh, yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, my bless your heart does not go out to a who. It goes out to an idea that is far past dated, and that is the 40-hour work week. As my dad has said, when I have had this conversation with him, he said, oh, of course, a Democrat that doesn't want to work. That is not the case. I don't mind working. I do mind selling my soul away to company after company for 40 plus hours of work. We are on this earth for X amount of time, for lucky a long time. Sitting behind a desk, we're doing whatever you do, is not the best way to spend that time. We should not have a 40-hour work week, which consists, and 40 hours is generous. There's people that are working two, three jobs, 40 plus hours, 60 plus hours, medical professionals that work very long hours doing what they do, uh, seven days a week sometimes, you know. So these are these are tiring systems that we have built, and we've built them for there to be practically no creativity within people's lives. I'm talking about this from from my perspective, not that I'm creative, but talking about the people around me that I know and that I'm sure listeners out there know too that have been overwhelmed and overburdened by burnout, work, and stress in their lives because of their work. There are things that we would much rather be doing and things that we would we'd love to do that we can't because of the work that, that we're consuming. I have a friend and and myself that have been working on being healthier. I have a wedding coming up that I'm trying to look better for and and shed some pounds. It's not easy to go to work all day, come home, get out, do workouts, come home, eat, and then have maybe two hours for the household work that you need to get done before you go to bed to get the necessary sleep that you need to be awake. Developing countries around the world are starting to change the way that they look at work. 
And, and I think it's high time that we do that. Uh, there's no reason we should not have 35-hour work weeks down to 30-hour work week. We also need to change the meaning of what full-time work actually is. Uh, I think that's that's very important. Uh, so I'm, I'm complaining because I'm exhausted today and 40-hour work week can go fuck itself. But I'm also complaining for people who are under the oppressive thumb of capitalist society. And me saying that is another reason I will never get elected in the state of Tennessee should I decide to run. But it's true and, and capitalism is meant to uh, crush morale in a creative society. Yeah, and at least looking at it from like desk jobs, how much work are you actually doing of your like of your forty hour work week? How much is it actually work? Like twenty hours, twenty five hours. The rest is like office bullshittery or you know pretending to do work. You're not actually working. If you like Sweden has done a great job of proving like or Denmark, like if you cut down the work week, if you cut down the amount of time people have to spend at the office, they make the most of that time. They're not bullshitting with their coworkers anymore. Like they're actually working. Productivity goes up. It's been proven to show that productivity will go up in in the lower work hours uh, weeks. If, if that even means cutting down and making a three-day weekend and cutting down hours during a four-day work week or cutting down hours to make a five-day work week. I think either is a better alternative to consistently having employees that are burnt out, stressed, and exhausted and not being able to have leisure time that they actually deserve. Your your leisure time is not, you know, something that's, that's a privilege for you to have uh, you should actually be able to have leisure time in, in your life and be able to actually just relax. And a lot of that, of course, comes from a place of privilege that, you know, I work one job and people work extra jobs. So there's an argument to be made that 40 hours or less of work is, is a very privileged place to come from. So we also need to look at ways that we can alleviate, you know, by raising wages, making sure people aren't living in abject poverty or below the poverty line as well. And that a 40 hour work week is just one of many problems that there are within society itself, especially the work society. Yeah, maybe. Maybe shortening the work week would give Senator Hensley more time to where he doesn't have to hit on his cousin anymore. He can go find himself a, a real mistress. <laughs> he might be able to go out there and find someone else for him. It doesn't have to rely on the mandated vacation to the family reunion. <laughs> okay, Ben, with that, I think that's our show. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us. Drew, where on the World Wide Web do you live? Oh, people can find me on Twitter at Andrew Dyson. That is D-I-S-O-N, not D-Y-S-O-N, like the vacuum cleaner. I would not be doing this podcast if I was making vacuums. Uh, And make sure to follow us on Change Tennessee's uh, Twitter page, which is at ChangeTN underscore. Be sure to follow the podcast on Twitter at pod underscore South. You can find me on Twitter at Graham 851 and be sure to leave us those sweet, sweet five-star reviews as they help other people find us and learn more about the shenanigans that are going on in the South. All right, everybody have a great day.